In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Last week, we heard Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, so-called. It is a remarkably moving and profound reflection on the human condition, and it was so lovingly explored with us by Brother Aidan. But what exactly does prodigal mean? It wasn't well into adulthood that I discovered that the word had more nuances of meaning than I realized. On the one hand, of course, it refers to being recklessly wasteful or extravagant, such as in disposing of goods or money. And that is probably the meaning that most of us associate with the parable of the lost son that we heard last week. But there is a second related meaning of prodigal, understood as lavish in giving or yielding, generous, open-handed. It is this meaning that we need to hold in mind this morning as we listen and reflect on the gospel story of the anointing of Jesus. We hear today of a woman, in this case, Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, anointing Jesus in preparation for his burial. This story is, in one form or another, told in all four canonical Gospels, though, as usual, John's Gospel gives it a particular spin or emphasis. It is placed right at the outset of the beginning of the Passion narrative, just six days before the Passover, and Jesus' betrayal, arrest, and death. And ready or not, we are catapulted into Passion Tide. What makes this a prodigal act? Well, obviously, the expense of the ointment or perfume. The gospel narrative tells us that it is worth 300 denarii, or about a year's wages. Can that be true? And if it is true, we might find ourselves asking with the disciples or, in John's gospel with Judas, the question, why this waste? This ointment could have been sold and the money given to the poor. It does seem, rationally speaking, to be a rather extravagant and over-the-top action. Yet Jesus immediately intervenes to stop any criticism of Mary. He says, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Indeed, in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, Jesus goes on to say of her action, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she had done will be told in memory of her. Following the model of an Ignatian meditation, I'd like to share three points about this event and John's take on it. First, and I regret that I need to say it, but it must be said. 
Jesus' response to Mary's critics that the poor are always with us is no excuse for not caring for those who are poor or in need. Jesus is here alluding to a passage from the book of Deuteronomy. And anybody in that circle would know the whole quote, and we should as well. Let me read it from Deuteronomy 15. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. There is a continuing obligation on our part to open our hands and our hearts to the poor. Our Lord's saying this serves as a reminder to us all. This is part of the ordinary obligation of Christian living. But let it also be said that amid ongoing obligations and ordinary life, extraordinary events can and do call out extraordinary responses from one or another of us. And Mary of Bethany was one who was called out. Second, the writer of John's Gospel places this event not in the household of Simon of Bethany, as do the authors of Matthew and Mark, but in the household of Jesus' friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And unlike the woman in the other Gospel accounts, this woman is not anonymous. She has a name. She has a family, though admittedly a rather non-traditional family, and she has a relationship with Jesus. Yes, we'd like to know more about all these family members, but what we do know is that they are people with a respected place in their society and culture, people with shared dreams and hopes, and people with complex and life-giving relationships with each other and with our Lord. They are friends of our Lord, and it is in the womb of their friendship that Jesus finds comfort and rest. I find it not only interesting, but encouraging that this event, so tender and prophetic and, yes, shocking, happens within the intimacy of discipleship, understood as friendship, and in a place where Jesus can find a home. Third, let's be frank. This is a pretty wild act on Mary's part, isn't it? And we're not just talking about the cost of the ointment, its value. There's also the issue of the hair. I'm not so sure how the culture of Jesus's day might have viewed the anointing of the head or feet of a man by a woman, especially in a quasi-public setting. But I can't help but imagine that the wiping of the feet with her hair made some of the onlookers just a little bit nervous. 
kind of the way I get nervous when I see public displays of affection or intimacy. What got into her that she was moved to do this? There is, of course, something spontaneous about it. The Gospel says that she bought the perfume or ointment so that she might keep it for the day of Jesus' burial. But somehow, Mary recognized that now is the time. Suddenly, she realized that she needed to act without, I imagine, thinking too much about it or agonizing over it, but just doing it, period. Her knowing was that kind of knowing where we realize only later the magnanimity and enormity and consequences of what we have done. Perhaps that what, that's what part of falling is in love is like. It's seldom moderate, at least at the outset. There's an insistence and indeed even a madness about it which gives it much of its meaning and lasting power. I think of the Friar Lawrence in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, saying to Romeo as he awaits the arrival of his beloved, love moderately, long love doth so. Of course, as they meet, they throw themselves into each other's arms at least in Franco Zeffirelli's movie version. <laughs> and they're having nothing to do with moderation. Their love is immoderate and spontaneous and ultimately tragic. But I wonder if falling in love with God doesn't elicit and need something of that immoderate character, that kind of energy and abandon where we're all in or we're not in at all. Two decades ago, we were blessed for seven years here at Holy Cross Monastery with the presence of Mary Clock, a Catholic religious sister of mercy, who shared in our life and taught many of us profound lessons in holy living. Mary was of strong Irish Catholic heritage and one day quoted a poem to me which captured my imagination. It was The Fool by Patrick Peirce. Peirce was an Irish political leader and revolutionary, one of the architects of the Easter Rebellion of 1916. Many see him as a patriot, others as a terrorist. That's the inherent ambiguity of political revolution. In his poem, Peirce urges us, as he urged the Irish people, to be all in. It's a dangerous poem, one which can be read as advocating violence. But at the heart of it, I believe, is also encouragement to live prodigally with abandon, with trust. I quote a portion of the poem. 
I have squandered the splendid years that the Lord God gave to my youth in attempting impossible things, deeming them alone worth the toil. Was it folly or grace? Not men shall judge me, but God. I have squandered the splendid years. Lord, if I had the years, I would squander them over again. I fling them from me. <clears throat> For this <clears throat> I have heard in my heart, that a man shall scatter and not hoard, shall do the deed of today, nor take thought of tomorrow's teen, shall not bargain or huckster with God. Or was it a jest of Christ's? And is this my sin before men, to have taken him at his word? <clears throat> the lawyers have sat in council, the men with the keen, long faces, and said, This man is a fool. And others have said, He blasphemeth. And the wise, <coughs> excuse me, and the wise have pitied, pitied the fool that hath striven to give a life in the world of time and space among the bulks of actual things to a dream that was dreamed in the heart and that only the heart could hold. O oh, wise men, riddle me this. What if the dream come true? What if the dream come true? What if, after all, the ointment was not wasted? What if the love <clears throat> was immoderate, even embarrassing, maybe even tragic? I am reminded of Mary Oliver's question. What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? No matter how old we may be, that question lives. This has been a season of prodigals. The lost son, prodigal in his wastefulness, and his father, prodigal yet more in his loving forgiveness and welcome. There is the prodigal Mary of Bethany, whose wildly spontaneous generosity filled her house with fragrance, covering over the odor of her brother Lazarus's death, even while preparing the Lord for his own entombment. And of course, there is the greatest prodigal of all, our wildly generous Lord Jesus Christ, who gives himself freely for us and for our sake and out of love for us and out of all proportion. With this anointing, he begins his journey to the cross, and it is to the cross that we turn our faces. This is the same Lord who teaches his disciples and us that there is no greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And, O oh, brothers and sisters, what a friend we have in Jesus. <clears throat>